Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, church. So, so good to be with you this morning. About 20 years ago, I came back into New York City from Boston, having been a Bible student there, Bible school student, and uh, came here to plant a church, and it was like a dream come true. I was going to be the associate pastor, and for four years, just really amazing, fruitful, beautiful work, going so well. And then all of a sudden, one day, I went from being the associate pastor to the lead pastor in a transition that was completely unexpected, we were unprepared for. I found myself, I was young, energized, and woefully underprepared for all the challenges that come with the church plant that was only four years old. And you know, in the church planting world, if you're four years old, you're still considered a puppy. You're, you're, you're an infant. And all the challenges that come with the infancy of a church plant we're now right before me, and conflict, my own immaturity, the ins and outs of a transient city, I, grind, I grinded out for six years after that. Just every week, week after week, thinking, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get through this? After the six years were up, I eventually resigned, discouraged, and completely disconnected from my own heart and from the heart of God. And here's the thing. In the process of pastoring this church plant, I knew early on, I knew in my heart that I could not attach my heart, that it would be a bad idea to attach my heart to this church plant and to the success, quote-unquote, of this church plant. I knew that. But the problem was it had already had. It had become my dream. I wanted more than anything for this church plant to survive. And deep down inside, there was also a knowing that I had to replace this dream of this church plant succeeding with a different dream. And I also knew that that one dream, that dream could only be one thing, and that was a wholehearted relationship with God. But the problem there was that I didn't quite know how to have that, even as a pastor. I had become what... Uh, we in the pastor circles called uh, professional Christi- Christianity. I became a professional Christian. I knew more about the Bible than I did about God's own heart. And let me tell you, it's a strange thing to pastor a people into God's presence when you don't know that presence yourself. Unfortunately, I believe, and in my experience as a pastor, this is not something that's you know, unique to me and to my experiences. This is something that many of us have gone through. As, as, as I'm walking with people as their pastor, I've seen many believers and leaders even who were once walking with the Lord solid, walking, trusting, believing, serving, and then experienced disappointment or hurt or discouragement mainly because of a delay on things that they were expecting or hoping for. Things that were either church-related or personal or work-related. And in the process of these discouraging things that they've, they're now encountering, what they do is they stop walking. It, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's a slow process of 
Steps coming slower and slower and until one day they realize they're not walking anymore. Passivity has set in and they have either checked out or they're coasting. And the truth is, beloved, that we all wrestle with this. Do we not? We've all been there. Especially, especially what to do with the disappointments and the delays that hit us right here, right in our dreams. Well, we're going to look at a few passages today, but I want us to start with Matthew 25, in which Jesus gives his final teaching to his disciples in private just a couple days before he's about to be arrested and crucified. And in this teaching, he shares a powerful parable about sustaining and growing in love for God through pressure, through disappointment, delay of dreams, the very things that are about to hit the disciples in a few days. And so let's go there. Go with me. I think it's going to be up on the screen here. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like, and I'm going to stop right there because I want to ask the question, when is then? Jesus says, then the kingdom. So when is then? Then is referring to a question the disciple asked back in Matthew 24. And the question he asked is, what will be the sign, Jesus, of your coming and of the end of the age? So then is in reference to the generation in which the Lord is going to return, in which Jesus returns, commonly known to you and I as the end times or the end of the age. And this is important for us because it it tells us that Jesus is not just talking about any given time, but about a time that's going to be rife, completely shot through with pressure and tribulation. If, If you've read Matthew 24, it's filled with things like war, rumors of war, right? Betrayal, a culture of betrayal that you will die for my name's sake. It's pressure, turmoil, tribulation, delay, and disappointment. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. He has in mind when he gives this parable. Continuing, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So what's happening here? Disciples listening to this story would know right away, Jesus is talking about a, a Jewish wedding. Right? And what would happen is a, a Jewish bridegroom, right, the guy, typically at night, on the day of the wedding, or the night of the wedding, would travel from his father's home all the way to the bride's house, pick her up there, and bring her back to the father's house, to the bridegroom's father's house, where they would have the wedding celebration. But along the way to going to her house, he would be met by a wedding party, consisting usually of uh, virgins, and they would have lamps, torches, to light the path for the bridegroom, bring him to the bride so they could all go back to the house and party. Continuing verse 2, five of them, he says, were foolish and five were wise. It's a teaching tool Jesus often uses, creating contrasting groups. Five foolish, five wise. And the question is why? Jesus continues in verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, here, here it is, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. When the ten virgins go out, they all go out with lamps to meet the bridegroom. It's going to be dark, remember. They all have lamps, and the lamps already have oil in them. And they're expecting things are going to go normal, right? Like the bridegroom's going to come when he's supposed to show up. We know how that goes, right? He'll be there, and so we'll bring our lamps. Five of them, for some reason, bring extra oil. We don't know why. The other five don't. But guess what happens in verse 5? 
as the bridegroom was what? Delayed. He's late. They all become drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. When the cry finally goes out at midnight, the ten have already burned through the oil that was in their lamps, right? And now the wise, and only the wise, have the extra oil to start their lamps and find their way to the bridegroom. What is Jesus here? Let's look at it together. Who is the bridegroom in this story? Jesus, yeah. It's Jesus, the long-awaited Jesus, but he is delayed. And that is key, that's a key detail. Expectations, in other words, not met. Jesus is preparing his disciples here. They literally thought that within weeks they were going to ascend thrones with Jesus as their new king in Israel. Right? But instead, what happens? Within a week, they lose their new king and messiah. Within a few years, most of them are martyred for their faith. And within decades, all of them are martyred, except for John. That's not how they thought it was going to go. It's not what they had signed up for. What about the lamps? What do the lamps represent here? Lamps represent here earthly assignments, roles, ministry. Whether you're a parent or a pastor an accountant, a volunteer, a coach, or any combination thereof, within the church, outside the church, we all have, every single one of us here, have our earthly ministries and assignments, and these are our lamps. We all have one. It's the vehicle through which we live in this world. But what about the oil? What is the oil? That's the big question. When you look throughout Scripture, you find that oil is the presence of the Spirit that touches our hearts when we spend time with God. Let me say that one more time. Oil is the presence of the Spirit that touches our hearts when we spend time with God. In a word, it's intimacy. Intimacy with God. An intimacy that comes with spending time with Him, abiding with Him. Intimacy that's cultivated through investing time, energy, resources, and being with Jesus and talking with him, not just talking, but feeling in our hearts the movements of his hearts. And this oil of intimacy teaches us, it tenderizes our hearts, and it helps us to love and trust God more. And so Jesus here, what he's doing is he's teaching his disciples through this parable that to be wise in his kingdom, intimacy the oil, in other words, with the Lord is primary and our assignments and the influence we have through these assignments, through our stations in life, through our roles, be it parent, pastor, teacher, these things are all secondary. Are you with me? But for five of the virgins in this parable, the ones Jesus calls foolish, they prioritized what? The assignment. They prioritized the ministry. 
They prioritized the work in their hearts. And that was me. And so here's a point that I'd like to propose. When our lamp or our assignments and its success becomes more important than the oil or, the, or intimacy with God, we will not be able to sustain wholehearted love for God and for ourselves and others when the delay, disappointments, and pressures of this life come into play. We won't be able to sustain it. Pressure is too, too high. Things get too crazy. Sickness, illness, twists and turns in the plot. We all have it in our mind, right? We, we dream of the, of the way it's going to go, right? We have dreams about, about our lamps, don't we? It can be a successful and influential career or business or being an enlightened parent with enlightened kids, having a particular lifestyle or ministry impact. You get the idea. We all have these dreams. Not that God doesn't want to give us any of these things. You know, that he may or may not, but that's not the point. These are not bad things. These are good things, most of them. But the point is, and watch this, the point is that when our number one dream is connected to something other than loving God and being loved by him, growing deeper in intimacy with him, allowing our hearts to be moved by him, loving what he loves, growing in a spirit of obedience because we love him and delight in him more than other things, then we become vulnerable to the delays, the disappointments of this life when these particular dreams don't happen the way we thought that we had planned out so perfectly in our minds. Man, I had, a, I had an idea of exactly where this church plant was going. I had it all mapped out, literally, in a, in a spreadsheet. As a result of this, in my life and maybe in some of yours, as you're sent into a tailspin of despair or frantic busyness, it could be either or, right? And as a result of that, we become spiritually lukewarm, offended even, offended at God. God, how could you? You brought me here. This was your church. Why are you doing this? Fatigued. We become passive and check out altogether because we were more tied to the expectations than to God's heart. It was in the midst of that season uh, of church planning 15, 20 years ago. I was in a slow burn. Man, I was feeling it. I was burning. Not in a good way. And, uh, and I remember my wife, Carol, and I had a friend of ours stay with us a couple days. And it was clear to both her and I that this friend, she had a connection to God that was just different. You know what I mean? Do you guys have a friend like that? Their connection is just different. She clearly heard God's voice. It was like she was on an adventure with God. She was so excited. And, and, and she talked about him like she knew him and she liked him. But more than that, more importantly than that, she knew that he liked her. And I just couldn't relate. Here I am, a pastor, listening to her, and I just couldn't relate. But she had my attention. And I remember like it was yesterday, she was helping with the dishes. And I asked her straight up, I said, how do you hear God's voice so clearly? And she stopped. It's like she understood the gravity of the moment. She turned off the faucet. She looked at me. And she said one word. 
intimacy. And right there and then, in that moment, I decided, I knew that that would be the number one priority in my life going forward. I just knew it. The past 20 years has been a journey of learning to hear the heart of God in the secret place in a way that I knew existed but didn't think was either accessible or maybe the truer thing to say would be that it wasn't worth it or maybe that I wasn't worth God's time to spend with me. But I was so wrong. And don't get me wrong, church, I'm not doing it perfectly. Not even close. It's three steps forward, two steps back, and I'm constantly having to sign back up. Constantly, several times a year. But every time I do, he's so faithful to meet me. He's not offended by me that I've been away. He's so gracious and kind. And in the beginning, I have to tell you, it was scary to dive into this kind of language with God, this kind of time with God. But when you see a little of his heart, then you start to feel a little. And the truth is, those closest to us have the power to encourage us, to wow us, and also to hurt us. And for some of you, the word intimacy is a scary word, and and praying to God, talking with him can be a scary experience. I get that because it took me a minute to realize that I wasn't entering into conversation with him because I was afraid of him. I was afraid of what he would say or afraid that he would echo just the things I've heard from others or even worse, that he wouldn't say anything at all, that there would be silence. Let me just say this for us, beloved, that it is, it's a risk. Every time you get in the secret place with him, it's a risk. God, are you here? What are you going to say? But at some point, you choose. You ask the question, is he really who he says he is? Is he really who he says he is? Then, then I want to find out for myself if he really is. You know, I can't let others have all the fun by themselves, you know. So you dive in. Beloved, do you know that right now, God delights in you at this very moment. He's looking down on you, sitting in this room, and he has just delight all in his heart for you. And I know for some of you, you've had a hard time, you have a hard time even conceptualizing that idea, let alone believing it, mainly because of how your mother or your father failed to demonstrate that delight to you. Or maybe because of what happened last night or even this morning. And you're wondering, how could a holy God possibly delight in me? I'm not saying that he agrees with everything that we do. But in the grace of God, he delights in you. He delights in me. Even in our weakness. And the truth is, he's thinking about you at this very moment. And, and those thoughts, even one of them, if you were to just randomly grab one from the bottom of the pile. That thought would be so personal, so accurate, so encouraging, so filled with hope and love that it would sustain you spiritually and emotionally for the rest of the year. It may be through a verse or a song, something someone says, or a whisper of the Spirit. But here's the thing. He has not dozens or hundreds or thousands, but billions of these thoughts about you. And he longs to share them with you and me. 
only if we would ask. And yes, he is silent at times. He's often silent. But when you do hear his voice, when you tap into his heart, it changes everything. Part of what Jesus is telling us through this parable is that there is an ocean of difference between working for God as a servant versus working with God from a deep bridal identity. As Trevor was praying about earlier, that he loves us like a husband loves his wife. It's a difference between slaving for him versus working with God from a place of knowing the movements of his heart, from a place of deep intimacy. I have a mentor who, uh, who had a brother who was paralyzed from the neck down for 30 years from a sport uh, accident, sport injury. And so he was in and out of these amazing long-term care facilities for paralysis. And my mentor would often visit his brother and stay with him for weeks on end to help him through his therapy. And in these visits, he would see these amazing nurses work. And every once in a while, a nurse and a patient would fall in love. And he would see the way that would change the nurse's approach to the patient. It's no longer checking things off a list. You can throw that list away. Are you kidding me? It's not about a paycheck anymore. They're doing it for love. And that is the dynamic you and I, we are being invited into with God. So some of you, you're listening to this and you're thinking right now, this is great, James, I want this, I really want this, but why can't I seem to sustain a vibrant intimacy with God? Why can't I sustain a prayer life? Well, I want to share two things with you on this that I've found so helpful. First, let's look at this. Jesus says in John 14, 14, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Spirit of truth. In other words, this is so key. It takes God to love God. It takes the power of God to love God with all our heart. We cannot do it in our own strength. We have tried. You have tried. I've tried. And the Spirit's greatest work is to empower people, empower you and me to love Jesus. It's one of the greatest gifts we can receive, this longing for God. It's not something we generate out of ourselves. It's a gift from Him. It takes God to love God. So if you want, you can make your number one prayer Holy Spirit, empower me to love Jesus, to see Jesus, to feel the movements of his heart, and to walk in a spirit of obedient love. That could be our number one prayer. Holy Spirit, empower me to love Jesus. And this flows into the second thing. So the first thing is it takes God to love God. But the second thing is this. Over the years of pastoring, people have come up to me and asked me, uh, and they asked me, how do you sustain a prayer life? And for many years, I did not answer that question. But more recently, this is, this is what I share with them. It's a key that the same mentor handed me years ago. He said this. He said, devotion and prayer does not come by trying harder. Right? You don't grit our teeth. We don't grit our teeth and go hard. You know, pray, pray, pray. That's, that's not how you do it, he said. That may work for a season, And then you get tired. He said, if you want to pray more, you must see more. Let me say that again. If you want to pray more, you must see more. 
You have to gaze. You ever gaze? Like sometimes I gaze at my wife. And I do it when she's not looking. You know, it's better that way when she doesn't know I'm doing it. But I drink in her beauty with my eyes. You know? And then clarity sets in. And I think to myself, what is she doing with a clown like me? Men, you know what I'm saying. We drink it in. We must see his heart. And as we see more, what happens is you feel more. As you feel more, you get in the conversation more. And as you get in the conversation more, you see more. And as you see more, you feel more. As you feel more, you pray more. And on and on, that cycle goes. As some of us, many of us, it's, I'm going to pray more, God. This is the year I'm going to pray more. And we pray, pray, pray. And it may work for a month or two, maybe even three. But then you hit that wall. And you stop. And you pull away. And what happens is, what happens to me is, I feel discouraged. I feel shame. God, I stop praying. I'm a pastor. I don't even pray. But when you see his beauty, your heart is moved. And you see the tenderness of his heart through the help of the Holy Spirit, then it's Jesus. Thank you. I see you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me despite my weakness. Holy Spirit, show me more. And yes, it's two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. We're not going for perfection. And it's costly. It'll cost you time, energy, sleep, saying no to other things. We're going, we're going for here is reaching for him. The reach alone, God sees that, I believe, and he says, I see that. That's love for me. He sees it as loving him. And for us to not give up and draw back when we feel discouraged, that in a nutshell is the spirit of obedience. That's obedience to God. To not quit, to not draw back. And so we don't love God more by gritting our teeth, by going hard. We love more by seeing him more clearly by seeing the way he loves us more clearly. Just to say no to sin or other passions is not enough. We have to see the greater pleasures of who God is to us and how much we move his heart. Replacing the other passions with the greater passion of Jesus. Is this making sense, church? So I want to do this. What I want to do in the time that we have left here is just take a glance at the beauty of God's heart towards us this, this is the greater storyline, the story of his heart. And this, in my opinion, is fuel for the fire of love in our hearts for him. Let's go to John 17. Many call this section from John 13 to 17, the holy of holies in Jesus' teaching. In John 17, 24 to 26, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. And this is what it all boils down to. This is the big why behind all the what's of everything that he's been doing. He says this, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying the why, the big why from eternity past is that the Father, Son, and Spirit, the God have been enjoying a perfect love-filled relationship from eternity past with one another. And that love has spilled on over onto humanity. In other words, he wants a family of love and affection. Jesus is saying, the Father and I are inviting you into the family dynamic of love that we have been enjoying from eternity past. Last Sunday, I'm sitting in the back of the the sanctuary here worshiping, and, and Robert gets up to speak. I noticed this young woman sitting just a couple rows in front of me, and next to her sitting a, a, an older gentleman who I'm assuming was her dad. And she threw, uh, and Robert gets up to the platform to speak, and she begins to whisper into uh, the father's ear. She does it once, twice, a couple more times. I'm like, ah, oh, they, mu- they must be discussing something pretty important. They keep talking, or she keeps talking to him. It wasn't until like the fifth or sixth time I realized that they weren't talking. She was translating the message into her dad's ear. And immediately my heart is moved. I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool. And it's not that she was doing that even though. It's the way she was doing it. She had her arm draped around her father's shoulders. And she would listen. When there was a break, she would immediately, with eagerness in her face, turn and just whisper it. I'm not sure what language it was, but right into her father's ear. And he would sit there and he would nod his head. I got it. I got it. I mean, you could just see the tenderness and the intimacy. And immediately my mind started wandering and thinking about their history as a family, as father and daughter. You know, he must have been a good dad, I think. I wonder what it was like around their dining table. He must have loved her well. I'm sure he didn't do it perfectly. But in front of me, I see the fruit of a love that broke its banks and spilled over. Beloved, that intimacy I witnessed last Sunday, it's just one, one billionth of the love and the tenderness between the Father and the Son. One, one billionth. God loves God perfectly. Perfectly, and with everything he has, it's the only way he knows how. It's he himself is love, and that same love now, John tells us, is the love with which he has laser focused on you and me. This is not something our puny human minds can comprehend. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. But into that tenderness, you and I are now being invited in. Not the angels, not the heavenly hosts, weak little you and me. And it changes everything. And in John 59, Jesus says to them, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Beloved, these two truths, that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves you and me in exactly the same way, it says. We'll be talking about this for the rest of eternity. This will never get old. That's how big it is. But that's not where it ends. One last thing. At the end of John 14, Jesus says, 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He's talking about Satan coming through the betrayal of Judas. It's happening just seconds from here. He has no claim on me, Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know what? That I love the Father. Okay? So Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified. It's going to take the disciples a minute and the rest of us a lot longer to understand what's really actually happening. And he's telling them, look, Satan's coming, but he has nothing on me. Guys, don't worry. He's got nothing on me. Right? You'll see. It's going to look dark for a little while, but you'll see what I'm about to do is in obedience to the Father. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father, Jesus is telling them. Okay? Jesus' obedience unto death was the most costly display of love for the Father in all of history. Jesus knew that in God's timing, everyone would know the truth, that he embraced the cross out of love for the Father. I love the Father. It's going to be stamped over his story forever and ever and ever. And this is how it will play in the end. In 1 Corinthians 15.24, Paul says, Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power when all things are subjected to him, to him being the Father, then the Son himself will also subject himself to him, that God may be all in all. In the end, when the entire earth will su is subject to King Jesus, every nation, leader, authority under Jesus' righteous rulership and leadership, every knee is bowed to him. Satan has been defeated thoroughly forever and ever. Jesus has earned the hearts of every believer through his costly obedience. He's going to bring all of it, the entire earth. Bring it to the Father and hand it over to him. And then Jesus himself will bow his knee to the Father. And Jesus will say, Father, it's for you. It's all for you. I didn't do it to be king. I did it for love. I did it for you because I love you. And then the elders will see this. In Revelation 4 it says, and they're going to get off their thrones and they're going to throw down their crowns and they're going to say, we want to be like Jesus. Father, we did it for love. We did it for you. We did it for love because we love you. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Beloved, he is worth it. The little decisions you make every day to reach for him. You know, you're driving to work and you're like, God, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's been a while, but I just, I just want to say hi. Right? That little reach. The little decisions you make every day to be with him, to talk to him, to abide with him, to fight off temptation and compromise, to call sin, sin, to not give up. That is the spirit of obedience. God hears that and sees that as love. Not to do it perfectly. But to continue to reach for him, even in our weak love, that is our love to him. And church, that is real. That is real to him. And we will go for this. We're going to seek him in the secret place because we know where this story is going. Beloved, God is looking for more than just a ministry partner, though he loves to partner with us in ministry. He's looking more for more than a business partner, though he loves to partner with us in business. He's looking for a bride who is equally yoked to him in wholehearted love because that's how he loves us.
He's longing for ones who long for him. And let me say this. You may not have great impact here. Very few of us will through ministries, through work. But if you will return his love to him with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will have great impact on his heart. And when you get to heaven before all the heavenly hosts and all the saints, you will stand before the Father. And it says this in Scripture, Jesus will say, this one, he loved me. She loved me. And your life will be called great for billions and billions and billions of years because of the way you loved him. Even when it was difficult, even when there was delay, even when there was sickness, even when there was disappointment. Do you see it? Beloved, it's worth it. He's worth it. He is worth it. Let's go to him now. Father, here we are. Thank you for calling us in to your family of love and affection. This love that you share with the Son and the Spirit. Thank you for calling us your sons and daughters. For giving us to Jesus, your Son, as his inheritance, as his bride. Father, we want to know the love that you share with your Son. Would you impart that to us? Would you allow us to see that love, to see Jesus? And take us into that place where we can not only see, but feel and to know without a doubt that you are good, that you are gracious, that you're kind. God, there are many of us in this room today who... We don't know if that's how you feel about us. Father, I pray for your presence that you would touch us in a way that would, without a shadow of a doubt, allow us to see Jesus as our Savior, as our Comforter, not only as our King, but as our friend. Would you make a way for us to commune with you, to touch your heart? Let's take a moment now and just say that prayer. Holy Spirit, empower me to see Jesus. Empower me to love Jesus. Father, thank you for the story of love. You're writing us in. Such a beautiful story. God, would you help us to feel, to know, and to live that out 
each and every day as we connect with you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.